Hello and welcome to another episode of the Respecting Your Elders podcast. Today my guest is Christopher Wood. That doesn't make sense since I'm not really older. Oh, that's sad. It's good to be on Respecting Your Elders. Well, um, you know, you're as old as you feel and we didn't say whether or not you're older than me or I'm older than you. Um, I think I think initially I set out to... Uh, talk to senior citizens like i just had a woman who was 93 the other day but just to get the podcast rolling i've been interviewing family and friends and uh maybe in the future especially now i think it would be great to um talk to you know people that were alive during the great depression and uh so i think that was the general idea going into it but um Right now, I have it. Anyone born after June 1982 qualify, can qualify to be a guest. Born prior. Prior. Yeah, I keep making that mistake. Um, so I've interviewed friends that are like a couple months older than me. Oh, nice. Nice, nice, nice. How's it going? Uh, how, how, great to have you on. Uh, how is everything going? Where do you live? Okay. Uh, actually, you know, I was about to say not so much today, but I haven't been to Greenwich Village in a while. Oh, good point. Um, I've definitely been to Silver Lake. Um, Los Feliz, uh, people would say in the past that it's sort of like the um, Brooklyn of L.A., like hips, yes. hipsters. And then yes. you would say Silver Lake is Greenwich Village. Same thing. I mean, Los Feliz, Silver Lake, a lot of, there's a lot of over. And uh, just a lot of New Yorkers live there, too. A lot, a lot of transplants. Yeah, I think there's a... It's funny, because I lived in New York for 10 years. I, I think people feel there's an overlap with with the, you know, as some say, the, this east side of L.A., uh, calling Los Feliz, Echo Park, uh, Silver Lake, the east side of L.A. But uh, having lived in New York for 10 years, I... I don't really see it. I mean, it certainly doesn't remind. It's sort of New York light, perhaps Queens closer, something like that. Um, but uh, certainly, I think it attracts uh, uh, attracts New Yorkers because it's got a bit of an edge. So, and and it's not Hollywood. No, right, and more of an edge than the West Side. It, it, I got the impression that there's people that won't go west or that won't go west of the 405 or won't go east of the 405. West Side. I never went to Brooklyn. Yeah, I, you were, although I, I, that is true. Now that I think back to New York, a couple of people, you know, born and 
my side. It's like, no, I don't, I don't go over that, that other place. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, yeah, but I think you would agree at the same time, LA is sort of like comparing apples and oranges. Like people ask me, which do I like better? Yeah, that. Like right. Yeah, I I've been downtown. There's some big lofts and converted warehouses. Um, yes, yes. Which of course you never find in New York anyway. But <laughs> still, there that that is sort of a more traditional city uh, atmosphere that LA offers. Near Skid Row, and uh, of course it's been developed recently a lot and condos yeah but that makes sense um yeah um i was just thinking about new york versus la um i had the same experience i felt it was more i love new york also but i i now that you mention it it did seem more expensive to live in new york city um and it seemed like everyone was uh always moving always working always hustling i mean i know i'm saying things that most people most new yorkers already know but uh it definitely did feel more expensive like you were always kind of needed to be hustling but everyone else was also hustling yes yes i remember when i left now i had a very very demanding job uh in terms of hours um and i remember driving out of uh, i took a cab to the airport to come to la and i was passing by this bar and it was happy hour. And, and I just realized I, I couldn't remember going to a New York happy hour because uh, I was always in the office. Now, New York extends the evening quite, quite late into the night, so you don't miss out on anything. But um, that was, I, I just sort of took a step back and I said, is that, is that really, should I have done 10 years like that? So that, that's, that, that's part of the experience. How, a hard working city. Yes. Yes. Very hard that was when I and I first started to try to be self-supporting in New York. I went to acting school and then when that was done, it was time to get a job. You know? Yeah. Um I think it was funny. All not all of my friends, but many of my friends, except for a few who stayed in DC, moved right up to New York and we, no one came to New York and looked for a job. They all had a job, so that makes things a little bit easier. But the good thing about New York is uh, there's a lot of different ways to go. Um, I mean, 
city in uh, the country. And I think that's what draws a lot of people there. Even if you're there to do one thing and that falls apart, you may find yourself in this other industry that is thoroughly well represented there and you're not in the, the, the red stepchild of that industry. You're in the heart of it. So that's what sort of makes it exciting. Even if you go there and you're in one field, you can still keep that idea, oh, you know, I think I'm going to try something else and it might just be down the block. That's not bad. I loved it, and um, New York City, there's no place like it, and it's definitely been on our minds, I know, Where recently. Where did you go to acting school there? Um, I went to AMDA, which is AMDA, okay. on the west side, like 60, at the Ansonia building, at 72nd. Yes. I, I lived at uh, 74th between Central Park and Columbus. Okay, yeah. I went to, what was the store? Um, Fairway? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fairway Market. Mm-hmm. And uh, my gym was the Jack LaLanne. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think I went to a gym, but we did yoga at acting school all the time. Um, and go. and in New York, you're walking all the time. Um, yes. And there was that the well, there was the opera there, the Metropolitan Opera, of course. Yeah. And then there was also an independent theater that showed foreign films and independent movies. Yes, yes. I don't know if you ever checked out the opera, and for anyone listening to this, I think they still do it, uh, and it's what I used to do. There's a standing room, and they have just a, uh, a podium that you can lean against, and this is way back in the day, but it was like 10 bucks to see an opera. Wow. It was good and leaned against the podium. Oh, my God, that was great. And uh, I probably can't bring a date that way, but... That was going to say, depends, I guess, you know. If you're in yes. a pinch, uh, apparently the, the Metropolitan Opera is streaming uh, operas right now too for anyone yes, that needs entertainment. Um, it's very good. So yeah, so I'm trying to think what else was over there. Lots of stuff. Um, so okay, so and you've been how long have you been in Los Angeles? I came out to Los Angeles in 1999. Uh, out for a job and was with that job for about three years then retired and uh how's everything in silver lake and with you and your wife what does your wife do for a living my wife is a um creative designer okay creative director which involves a lot of designing so what my wife does is when you make an album of some sort all the print work video print album cover uh, whatnot she is the person that coordinates that um, the smaller the project she may be right hands-on involved with it uh, in terms of design and, and setting things out the larger the project she would be almost like the uh, acting producer that uh, coordinates the hiring of different people for photographers hair makeup that kind of that kind of thing very cool so it's, uh, it's a great job it's a great job that's awesome I think what was behind my question is that uh, she's not a nurse, so you guys are okay. You guys aren't in harm's way right now. We, we are not at all. Um, this is one of the, uh, I, I think this is, from our perspective, as easy a social upheaval to go through as um, uh, hopefully I'll be lucky enough to experience, um, provided uh, 
Yeah, my fiance and I are the same way. We still both can work from home. And um, so we feel very grateful. It's sort of hard to um, reconcile when there hasn't been too much of a change to your own life when you know so many people are struggling and suffering and there's can be feeling a powerlessness a little bit. Yeah, I think, curiously, I, I think they've done a pretty good job, uh, they, the collective California government, they, of outlining the significance of staying at home and how that does help. Mm -hmm. Right. Otherwise, you feel like, dude, the world's falling apart and I'm watching Netflix and, uh, you know, why does the world need me? But um, I, I think everyone who does stay home and practice the standards, you're getting stuff done. It's unfortunately, I wish, I mean, it's hard for Hollywood, but it would be curious for Hollywood to show that story because literally it seems like we're all in a script where the villain needs people to be closer than six feet in order to survive. So by staying away, you're killing the villain. If someone could show that, someone with experience, uh, that would be great. Mm -hmm. But um, that's really that really seems to be what we're doing. I look forward to um, a point where they can determine whether or not you were either naturally immune or, you know, some of us could have had it and uh, not even known it. And then you could go into the hospitals and help just, you know, be two extra hands uh, and while everyone is all wrapped up doing important things. Mm -hmm. I mean, just some solid manual labor things got to be a need. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, so backtracking, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I was born in the uh, one of the greatest towns uh, in America, South Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, which is a phenomenal place to be from. Uh, went to John F. Kennedy Elementary School, and I will say, it was funny because I I found them on the web and I sent them a note and I both realized and, and stated to them that everything I believe in now was taught to me then. There's nothing where I look back and go, oh, those idiots at JFK Elementary, they were saying this, but now I've learned that. No, they pretty much had it spot on. Uh, so it was a it was a really good school for for a little kid to get a chance to go to public school in New Jersey. And do you remember your what your interests were as a kid growing up? Uh, acting and singing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I um, I was a no. I can't say I was a decent athlete. Uh, I played judo, but that was about it. Um, I was not in organized sports. I think that might have been for lack of an older brother. Um, which seemed to be the pattern of how these things worked. Mm -hmm. But um, it was one of those public schools, and I'm sure they don't do this anymore, where it, I think around third grade, they said, what do you want to play? Oh, trumpet? Here's a trumpet. I still have it. Wow. They gave it to me. Uh, wow. And there were plays and stuff like that. So that's, that's really where the bug hit. Uh, in Mrs. Gluck was the librarian and the music teacher. I'm quite sure that was her name, Mrs. Gluck. Uh huh. And um, her class 
thing she introduced us to, I was like, okay, I'm in. Amazing. Um, you, how did you get into judo, and what was that like? Our family friends, uh, the patriarch of that family, Shidi Yamazuka, was a phenomenal judo player, and he owned a school. And I think I was pretty handily getting my butt kicked around the block um, by uh, some of the kids there. So my parents, in a bit of old-school parenting, said, well, you should, you know, take judo so you know how to defend yourself. And it worked. I actually, um, I, I actually took the classes. And then one of the main bullies, <coughs> actually the older brother of one of the main bullies, challenged me and said I couldn't put him in a judo hold that he couldn't break out of. And indeed I did. I held him, uh, much to his humiliation. Unfortunately... I was young and naive and failed to realize that eventually you have to let someone go. Uh, and he pummeled me after I let him go. Uh. But I took a beating and was never picked on again in that whole block area. That's beautiful. You don't have to. You don't have to stand tall, but you do have to stand up. So. Because no one else wanted to be put in that hold. I, you know. Judo kid. You were the judo kid after that. I think it's just the willingness. I remember I had a good friend, Scott Lewert, and he wasn't the biggest or the strongest by any measure, but he had two older brothers, and he was not going to back down. He just had that, you know, if you mess with me, I'm going to come after you. So, and, and that is probably the case with all, and not that he was a bully, but other bullies. When they know you won't just give in, people just, you know what, I'm going to go to easier pastures. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's the way that lesson was learned. It's interesting because I don't think, I mean, I was pretty handily beat up by that guy. I don't, I'm sure I didn't tell my parents, but I don't think they would have done anything. I mean, that was sort of like, oh, problem solved. Uh-huh. So. Um. Now, do you remember anything about judo? Like, how, how does judo differ from karate and kung fu? And uh, Having never taken those other disciplines, although I took a little bit of karate, judo is more wrestling in balance, trying to get someone off of their balance, usually using their momentum for you, toward you, or away from you, against them. And um, I recently started again in Little Japan, in Silver Lake probably about two years ago, uh, maybe about three or four years ago. Man, was it hard. Um, but it really is a... It really is, I mean, I'm sure all fight disciplines are this way, but it really is a, a, a thinking uh, a, a thinking person's uh, discipline and very practical, designed for the smaller person to defeat a, a larger person. Mm.
either Krav Maga or Judo is not incorporated into every female's uh, education in the United States of America. Mm. That's my point. Don't see why that's not the case. Well, look forward to working with you to make that happen. <laughs> yes, I got signs. Let's go on a march. As soon as this is over. Yes. The shutdown. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so you're in third grade. You've got a trumpet. Yeah. Um, and Mrs. Gluck is helping you get interested in singing and acting? Yep. Yep. I always knew I wanted to be on stage. Um, and indeed, I think there was a, um, oh my gosh, there was a talent show, which I failed to get into. But I don't know if you ever knew the show Hogan's Heroes. Yes. So there was, I guess, the, the Irishman the Scottishman uh, he was sort of the wisecracker and he had this routine where he did a sketch and he was talking to one person here and then turning his head like he was answering them so I thought it was genius genius so I went into the talent contest and I just improvised one terribly uh, and was summarily thrown out but I really liked it I mean I liked it's the same thing I liked about acting now. There's that first step you take toward an audition room uh, where your leg almost vibrates. And um, it's the same feeling I had, you know, trying and failing to get into that uh, talent show. And this is not one of those things where they didn't see the genius. They, they could see I was pretty terrible mm -hmm. uh, and had not rehearsed at all. But the feeling of trying was, was there. And that's why I was uh, psyched to give acting a go after I retired. So, so you got a rush. I did. I did. It is a very, you know, could easily be viewed as a, a negative rush. Um, like, you know, the feeling you get when you're falling or cars getting out of control or something like that. Mm -hmm. But um, it's so energetic uh, that... I don't know that anything comes close uh, comes close to it. I mean, it, it's and it's you get all this energy and it's relatively harmless. I think the closest thing is being a real, real, real diehard sports fan for a specific team. Mm -hmm. um, is there any consequence to it? No, but is it the greatest thing in the world when they win? Yes. It's very thrills. Yeah, there's worse things to get a rush from. Um, uh, do you remember the first thing you were in, or the first thing you did after that talent audition, um, or anything that sticks out to you? Yeah, we we had these assemblies. Um, I don't think I. In fact, I wasn't in a play. I I auditioned for one and didn't get in. Oklahoma which was a summer stock play. So I didn't get into that. Um, there was a lot of early failure in Christmas life. But we did have assemblies where, you know, they would just have the choir and the band. And uh, I think we did one kind of sketch once. But I don't think I did my first play until I moved overseas. And the school there was doing Toad of Toad Hall. I, I think that was my first play. I will say when I auditioned for that, I swore I was going to be good. 
because I had been I had practiced, but I think I was viewing being on stage in band as practice for being in a play. I was mm. like, well, I can play the trumpet, and it soon morphed to the trombone. Uh, I certainly can be an actor, and that was that was pretty fun. And then I was in. Okay, so then, um, what age were you when you went overseas? Sixth grade. Okay. Um, where did you move to? We moved to Lagos, Nigeria. And what was the reason for that? My dad worked for a company called Union Carbide, um, which is a chemical company. It's now been bought by Dow. Um, they uh, produced ever-ready batteries, and my dad was in charge of building an ever-ready battery plant in the northern part in Kano of Nigeria. And we lived in the headquarters uh, in Lagos, which was at the uh, port city in the southern part. What was that like moving to Nigeria in sixth grade? It was it was very scary. Uh, the word was that Lagos was very dangerous, and it was. Um, I had never moved before, so this was all about getting new friends. Um, there were a lot of things in Nigeria that you didn't, that that Nigeria didn't have that that, that the U.S. had. Um, for instance, Nigeria had no TV. As a consequence, I read like a fool. They had some television, and it, it was so limited. I was actually on a television program in Nigeria. They we we had a we made sketches for our school, and they showed that on national television in Nigeria. That's how sort of, they were like, we got to get anything. What? They're putting up sketches? You know. So. Uh, Amazing. Um, yeah. There was only, I think, two or three English shows a week. Um, so I would, uh, oh, my wife just came home. Uh, so we would watch those, but mainly you were just, it was, it was a great time. It was extraordinarily dangerous place to live. Really? It was a great place. Um, maybe, maybe this is a stupid question, but what was so dangerous about it? High crime, very, uh, I think there were only two ambulances, a uh, lot of car accidents, a lot of um, uh, armed robbery, both of your house and of your car. Uh, so Nigeria was, I mean, a true, even Africans who came and visited us in Nigeria would comment on how Nigeria was sort of the New York of 1970s of Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was on the edge, and I think it's still the same way. Did anyone look at you strange as being an American? Um, actually, the curious thing about my experience in Nigeria, and now bear in mind this is sort of the late 70s, it was the first time I was ever referred to as an American. Because in the U.S., that nomenclature was reserved for white citizens and not uh, you were a black American or Afro-American or what have you, but you weren't a straight-up typical American by any means. And then you go to Nigeria, and Nigerians would say, oh, yeah, yeah you're, you're a typical American. You sound like an American. You eat their food. You uh, do the things they do. So it long story short it was the experience of moving out of america that gave me a greater sense of how 
acculturated I was to the to this country here. Because I think, you know, particularly at that time, calling yourself an American as an African American was a little bit, you know, I was in the uppity range. Mm-hmm. You know, I was not. Uh, I remember for when I was a lawyer um, later on in the late '80s, if someone wanted to hire, say. Um, a receptionist and they wanted the receptionist to be all white and they put the, the ad out to the recruiters the way they would do that is say all American hmm. that was how they would ensure that it would be a, a, a white recipient so go back from that 10 years and you go over to Nigeria and then there's only a few of us Americans and there were kids from everywhere so you really did represent the United States and it was cool about it uh huh and um, did you have to pull out your judo at any point in the streets? You know, I was challenged to one fight. Uh, it was a young Nigerian kid. He was definitely a bully, and he wiped me out. Wiped me out. Um, I did get some boxing lessons. We had, uh, because it was paid for by the company, we had staff at the house. So we had a... Uh, Chief Cook, who was also the sort of the butler, Chief Cook and butler, and he had a small boy. That's his uh, person that's working under him to learn to be a Chief Cook and, and butler. And that small boy was an excellent boxer. And he would take me uh, to the bridge where they would do bare-fisted boxing. And I learned how to do that there. Oh, wow. Uh, it wasn't very good, but um, those guys were... I just can't, I was a reasonably in shape kid, certainly after being in Nigeria for six to eight months or so. The kids you were fighting against, they were so hard. I mean, if you hit someone's body, it was so much harder than yours was. Um, You know, it's just, it's a tougher life, it's a tougher environment, but um, it was a good lesson. I never won any, anything. Um, but I learned to lose pretty well. Um, you certainly learn to take a hit. Oh, take a punch fast. Mm-hmm. So, and it sounds yeah, like I, did, I, I guess I should could have used the judo, but I was too busy getting punched. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, you were accepted and found a little, somewhat of a community in that boxing on the bridge. No, I mean mostly it was at school. I mean that was the interesting thing at school. We had. Um, we had kids from, I think there was a point in my very small school where we had someone from every country on planet Earth. And the only reason that shifted is because at any given time, a country would shift and be, you know, absorbed into another country, so you'd lose one. But um, uh, just that experience of meeting all those kids from all over the world, I mean, that was, that sort of just got baked into me. Mm-hmm. It never really left. Um, it, it, it's almost the way I would say I identify myself uh, going forward, which is evidently uh, not uncommon. I think they call it third culture kids or something like that. That's really interesting and cool. Um, how long did you live in Nigeria? Uh, sixth to eighth grade. And then we moved to Pakistan from eighth to tenth. What eighth was... to halfway through 
junior uh, junior year, and then uh, um, then my parents. I had come back to the states to go to boarding school. My parents came back um, my junior year. And what was that like moving to Pakistan? Pakistan was a lot more peaceful and quiet than Nigeria. Yeah. No, it wasn't so. It was great, fantastic, but it was not nearly as glamorous, not nearly as dangerous, not so life on the edge. And, you know, Nigeria, when you got sick, you got really sick. And, you know, if you got lost or hurt, you were really lost or hurt. And Pakistan was definitely, you know, walking to school was no problem. And, there was actually no alcohol in the country, so as teenagers, you couldn't really get into much trouble. Mm. Um, and therefore, the parents just kind of let us run wild. Um, I've just actually joined the WhatsApp group for that class, and uh, we're, I was reminded of the stuff we did, and it was also harmless and kind of reminiscent of maybe coming from a small town USA, you know, where you're egging people's houses yeah. on Halloween and stuff like that. But that was pretty much all you could do. Uh-huh. It seemed like the 80s, it seemed like the 80s were a pretty harmless time or more innocent than now. Uh, I don't think so. Um, if, if you think about it, like, just from a loss of life perspective, among high school students, the 80s had to be the top for the United States. Maybe early 90s, but that was just... Um, I think the LA Times did, and this was before I got to LA, but they did a piece where they were going to just list children who had died by gunfire? No, who were murdered in a given day. So if, if a child was murdered, and it just said the list was huge. And that was just in, in L.A. Mm -hmm. So I actually think, because crack started in that time, and I, I think that was an extraordinarily difficult time, dangerous time for the U.S. I think, pandemic aside, um, uh, we live in much safer times. Mm -hmm. um, much safer times. Okay. Yeah, because I'm thinking of... Um... Well, I guess, you know, maybe parents let kids, I mean, I was a kid in the 80s, but I was thinking like kids just letting you go out, parents letting the kids go out and play and not really uh, being all over them. And I'm thinking yes. of, I'm thinking of like E.T. and The Breakfast Club and that kind of stuff. Not the, yeah. not Warriors. Absolutely. And, and, and even more so for kids my age in the 70s, but that wasn't because it was safe. It was just the culture of doing that mm -hmm. um, I think the statistics of stranger danger have not shifted at all uh, mm -hmm. so I would say the biggest change between early 70s mid 70s was as a middle class person which is where my family was coming from you didn't think that by virtue of being middle class you were divorced from danger in fact in listening to the adults at that time, there was always a sense of powerlessness. It was sort of the end of you can't fight City Hall uh, times. And you didn't have this sense that, oh, my children won't, won't get hurt. Indeed, your children would get hurt. They would get hurt in car accidents, and that was just something you had to accept. As time went on, 
people, uh, I think our culture has shifted where people say, well, my child can't get taken or hurt or injured in any way, and I have to make sure that happens. Um, so you have everyone keeping their kids a little closer, and that gives a feeling that the world is more dangerous. But it's just that, in my opinion, uh, opinion of one, our, se- our acceptance of the failure rate is, is non-existent. Mm. Uh, certainly, uh, there were kids who were killed in car accidents when I was young and whatever, and that was terrible. But I don't think there was a heavy blame on the, I mean, I'm sure the parents had uh, blamed themselves, but from a culture, you didn't say, oh, those parents screwed up. It was just, it happens, you know? And for some reason, I think in today's world, that is no longer acceptable regardless of whether or not it's going to happen anyway. I mean, people will get hurt, but we try now to live our lives in a way that uh, those, those things can't affect, uh, affect us. Now, uh, you said there was no alcohol really in Pakistan. I wanted to ask, is there any other ways? Pakistan's predominantly Muslim, right? Mm-hmm. Was there any way you saw that playing out in your life? I don't know, yeah. is Nigeria predominantly Christian? Uh, Nigeria was a was, um, uh, combination through Muslim, Christian, and traditional, uh, or, or more traditional um, uh, West African culture and religions. So, let me see. Ibo, Hausa, Yoruba. I believe Hausa was Arabic. Europe, oh, I can't tell you, but there were three main tribes: Ibo, Hausa, Hausa, and Yoruba. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure Hausa was the Arabic-centric um, uh, tribe, but check me on that. Um, Pakistan was almost decidedly Muslim. I mean, we had we had there were Christian churches there, Catholic churches. I, in fact, I was confirmed in Pakistan, um, but by the I think the bishop because. What else did he have to do? Uh-huh. A lot of them. Yeah. So, your confirmation is uh, done by the bishop in, in Pakistan, and your sketch show is on national TV in Nigeria. In Nigeria. That was big time. I peaked. I peaked early. Um, but um, the only thing that I remember from the that culture was if you went on a date with someone, someone may accompany you if it was... Um, uh, if their family was very conservative, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe it was just because we were young. But um, other than that, not not a big, not a huge effect. Uh, I did not go on many dates, so I can't imagine that happened very often. Did you do much traveling from out of Nigeria or out of Pakistan? All over the world. All over the world. When you were when you were a teenager living there. Yes. Where did you go, or what were some of your highlights? Um, best place was Tahiti. Uh, Trinidad and Tobago was good. Um, trying to think of the place where I was starstruck. So you visited you visited South America when you were in Africa. I well no that's the Caribbean. Um, I actually did not 
visit. So I would say if areas that I didn't go to were South America, Soviet Union, um, everywhere else you could get to. Europe you could get to pretty easily. Uh, Asia you could get to. Singapore, Malaysia, those areas. Um, so, and I even went to Bangladesh on my own uh, when I was 14 to meet a friend of mine there, uh, 14 or 15. Uh, so you got to travel. You really view the world as your sort of backyard. Uh, you were supported by a major corporation and they were sending you there, but you, you got a lot of travel experience. I will, I will say it was very funny. I was sitting in, this was years later when I was headed back to Pakistan for a friend's wedding. I was sitting in the airport in Abu Dhabi, just watching people walk by, and I realized I felt more comfortable there, or as comfortable there as I did anywhere on planet Earth, just sitting in an airport, I think. Uh, just seeing all the people from all over the place go, uh, you know, schlepping by. Yeah. Um, that was cool. That is cool. Not everyone's like that. No, no. And uh, it's interesting in talking to my friends who lived overseas, um, many of them just never came back to their host countries. Uh, there is something about being an expat. I remember when I graduated from college, I wanted to get to know um, the United States again. And I felt I had had such an overwhelming experience overseas, I didn't want to go back. I would probably reverse that if I had it to do all of it. Uh, that would dramatically change my life, but uh, uh, I, that would be tempting. Uh, my wife and I were uh, just actually for our wedding, we're in Barcelona. There was some guy there who had a new television show, and he was like, You know, put you in that show. It didn't really happen, but we thought about living in Barcelona, and we we're just like, This would be fantastic, right? So well, it's never too late. Keep looking at those Barcelona dailies, and there you go, there you go. Send in, send in my tape audition. Work on your <laughs> Catalan. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um. So then, uh, you came back to the states your junior year. Um. I actually came back. I started going to boarding school in sophomore year, so I was flying back in from Pakistan to go to boarding school, coming back from vacations. My parents moved back halfway through my junior year. Where was the boarding? Uh, where was the boarding school? Uh, North Andover, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Which is sort of the school. the Lagos of the Northeast. Now, <laughs> not quite. North Andover is a good town. I, I I actually hadn't been back for about twenty or maybe thirty years, and I just went back. It's a gorgeous town. Uh, my cousin had actually gone to the school before I before I had as a day student, and um, but I it was a it was a unique transition. I had been out of the U.S. for a while, and uh, uh, a, a, a Northeast boarding school or any boarding school is a is a curious way to get to know the U.S. again. Uh, um, I've never been in a cultural environment like that since. Uh, 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 so I'm glad I got a chance to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's definitely, it's definitely its own beast, I would say. Seems like polar opposite of 
a school in Lagos where you're with a student from every country Absolutely. in the world. It, it, it couldn't be more different. It couldn't be more different. Where, and now you're with exclusively Red Sox fans. Uh, you know, actually, that was very curious. Because it was a boarding school. Oh, okay. It got a lot of its kids from New York. So some of the local kids, their students, um, uh, were big Boston team fans. Mostly hockey, though. So mm-hmm. they were big Bruins fans. That was my concept because I wasn't really a sports guy. So they were a lot. There were some Bruins fans. We had. I will say this about uh, my school: we had a phenomenal hockey team and league. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I'm just gonna lie if this is wrong, but we played against Mario Lemieux. If we didn't play against Mario Lemieux, we played against someone just as good. But I think he was on one of the other teams. I mean, these kids could skate. Wow. Really good. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. So I'm guessing that's what you were doing uh, for fun, watching hockey games. And when did you start um, singing? I actually, uh, uh, I did a lot. There was an acapella group there. There was there was no choir. I formed my own jazz band with, and my drummer was Chief McNichol. Um, he goes by the name of the Rhythmatist. Uh, he's a brilliant drummer. And I remember when we were in boarding school, he would talk about his favorite um, drummers, Stuart Copeland, Rankin Roger from General Public, uh, those guys that he just thought were phenomenal. And years later, I went to present him an award at the school about 10 years ago, and he had just produced, he had just produced an album where all those guys came and played on his album. So uh, my great musical accomplishment is standing close to him uh-huh <laughs> and i could have rain- i i was a great uh i got things going so um i was good at like putting a band together all the musicians in the band were much better than i was but i i had a lot of energy to make it go um chuck taylor oh god he was a great flugelhorn player and this is the day, uh, it was, it was, that was fun. Yeah. So the musical experience at Brooks was extremely good. And theatrically, they had plays, they had a big theater. Uh, Did you do plays there? That didn't do anything to kill my acting desires. Did you do any plays there? <laughs> yeah, I did. I was uh, <laughs> nicely, nicely in God as and Dolls. Loved it. Loved it. Um, what else did we do? Oh, you know what? No. After Guys and Dolls, Connecticut had Summerstock Theater. And I did West Side Story, and I did Evita. And that was a great experience because a lot of the people that were in that were New York actors. So I was with real actors. Um, nice. And they were all quite good. Yeah. That's yeah. really exciting. Um, so that kept the bug alive. And then it sort of died after I graduated. I just thought I had missed the boat. Okay. So. Like, if you don't start on uh, the Mickey Mouse Club, what's the point? Yes. Yes. And certainly in New York, there were a lot of uh, uh, theatrical schools that were for young kids. And there was just that feeling of 
you know, if you're not on that train, there is no train. Uh, so I didn't do any other acting until I came out to L.A. when I was 34. A lot of, That's when I started. Probably a lot of breakdowns for all-American kids back then. There were a lot of breakdowns. Although, it was an interesting thing. Yes, that is true. But a friend of mine, uh, Bruce... Jenner. No, but... Lee. Close. He was the... Smith? Buffalo Bills? No. But the, the point is, I... So, Bruce. Uh, I'll, I'll come up with his name. I joined a... Because I wanted to do some singing when I got out to L.A. I joined a magical singing group. I heard the advertisement for it. There was a magical singing group. Talked to the guy on the phone. He said, come on over. We're rehearsing. Came on over. And I saw this guy, and I realized he was a character actor. And he played the black villain in, like, all of the films that you've seen. I mean, he was just a ferocious-looking guy. Nicest guy in the world. But he could really steal his face up. And... It was around that time that I decided to become an actor. And I said, well, it's probably good that I'm doing it now and not back in the day because I would have never gotten those roles for some of the, uh, all the villains and the criminals. And one of the things he said was anyone who's black played criminals back then. Like anyone. There was no like, oh, you're clearly not. No, you were black, you were a criminal. So you would have had all your criminal bona fides. Uh, and having been in the business for 20 years now, it is interesting to see guys that I started with that are maybe playing a criminal on that. They're all CEOs and lawyers now. They've all transferred. As, as you get older, they evidently you get more respectable and you go to law school and you buy a house and you own a company. And even when you used to run the biggest gang. You, you, and you mean the characters that they play are CEOs? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Correct. They've all transitioned. They're, they're edging into doctors. and I came late to the business in that sense, so I've sort of done the affable African-American thing from the beginning of my career. Um, but uh, I know for others, uh, you really had to be... It was like, you know, if you're an Italian or Jewish actor in the 70s or 80s, you're going to play a mobster. I mean, you were, you're, you're going to play a mobster. Uh, or Middle so, Eastern, Middle Eastern in the nineties, two thousands, or the two thousands or the two thousand tens, or yesterday. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, switching gears, you when you brought up sports, what are your sports teams? I uh, well, Hoya, George and Hoya. Yeah, of course. Uh, I I I bleed Hoya blue. Um, we've struggled. We've struggled, but uh, we'll be back. Yeah, we'll be back. Man, um, I, I don't know where you were at this time, but my dad had uh, basically, I uh, no, I think they were front row tickets. They were behind the press. There was like a press ta- press tables all along the sidelines. So, wow. but but we had front row tickets behind, maybe second row. I think it was front row behind the press guys at the Georgetown games at the Capitol Center. So. I was too. I guess I saw Ewing, but I was too young to remember. But I saw um, Alonzo Mourning and Dikembe Mutombo playing on the same team. Those were my years. Really? Yeah, that was when I went to school. Wow. Uh, that, yeah, I mean it was. 
So you were over in the fan section, or were you playing, uh, not trumpet, but trombone, or what did you say? I was not in the band. Uh, I gave up. Uh, I gave up the band once I. Um, I don't think I would have been good enough. They always had. They always had great bands. Yeah, they did. Uh, I but, remember. Uh, those were. Um, that was my years, either at Georgetown or just after I had left. Wow, that they were that so exciting. It's ridiculous to think that Dikembe Mutombo and Alonzo Mourning were on the same team. You think they would have gone further, but you need you need they, guards. The funny thing about the funny thing about uh, Dikembe was I clearly remember him playing. Uh, what is it? Not pickup ball, but like what's when it's not like twenty one or. No, 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 no! Not when it's not club club basketball. Okay, yeah. But first game, he was not. I guess he had to qualify, and he was not. I don't know how much he had played before he got to Georgetown. And he certainly learned as time went on. You can say that again. Uh, he he was phenomenal. And I will always remember there was an NBA series. I was a Knicks fan, just like severe Knicks fan. Um, and still am. Being from uh, Jersey. What? Being from Jersey. No, no, because I moved to New York after Georgetown. From your boarding school? So, oh, after Georgetown. Oh, okay. Patrick Ewing was there, so I was... Oh, of course. Uh, but I will say one of the more thrilling series I ever saw was Dikembe Mutombo, I think. Who were they playing? He was probably on Denver, Yep. want to say. Yep. And he they played against a juggernaut of a team, Seattle. Mm. And Seattle had them down 2-0. to zero in, in, the, in the playoffs. Best of three. Best of yeah. five, right. And they walked it back and won. Denver was the Denver was the eighth seed, and Seattle was the one seed. That's right. That's right. That was one of the. I mean, and and when you watch that series, and you get to that game, that game three where they first started winning, you have to understand. Yes, they won the next three games, but they won it. Seattle was good. I mean. Yeah, I think they went to the finals the next year, or it was Gary Payton and Sean Kemp and Detlef Schrempf. Exactly. Yes, that's right, Detlef Schrempf. Um, they were monsters. Um, so every, I, I'm sure I lost weight watching it because every possession mattered, and the Kimbe just you know you you see sportscasters and they say put them on his back and da da da. He didn't have the kind of basketball game where that could happen because they usually only articulate that with someone who can put in a lot of baskets. So he's mostly defending and, and you know, maybe he's 10, 12 points a game, 15 if things go uh, well back in the day. I don't remember his stats. I'm sure I would have had it back then. So many blocks. But every possession, every possession, it was just – and then the blocks were – off the charts. I mean, it was, and I remember him clutching the ball at the end. That's probably one of the highlights of the NBA. Yes. That I've ever seen. It's a very iconic moment that they still show in highlight reels. Yeah, I think so. I think him down on the ground clutching the ball. Yes. And it's that would have been round one, right? Because it was. It was yes. Yeah. And uh, not long after that, the SuperSonics left Seattle forever. So, it's a coincidence. They never recovered, and did, and you knew Dikembe personally, or 
No. Did you ever um, meet him? Do you ever um, meet him? He, uh, you know, I might have said hi around campus. He was truly a big man on campus. Um, the interesting thing about... Look out for that door frame. I mean, beyond beyond tall. My, my cousin, I think, is either 6'11 or 7 feet. Uh, and he doesn't seem as big as I remember Dikembe. I think Dikembe is 7'2". And Dikembe, at 7'2", I can remember him walking around campus in his skin-tight, long, where do you find jeans that long? Skin-tight, long jeans. Actually, where do you find? I mean, that's a name scene that had to be like 52. Um, skin-tight jeans, white shirt, big uh, cowboy hat on, and cowboy boots with two-inch heels, walking across campus, just gliding across campus, and a voice that was in the floorboards. Um, Oh, yes. Also, a brilliant guy. He worked for the, I want to say, the International Monetary Fund, I believe. Okay. Um, spoke many languages. Where is he from? Uh, Zaire. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and he's now, I'm, I, I know he built one hospital in Zaire. He may have built uh, more since then. I seem to remember uh, him doing a lot. Very connected. Mm-hmm. And he has, a, he has a younger brother. I think plays, but uh, oh. yeah, Deke was, I mean, that was a learned, look, he's very tall, but there's, uh, I've watched the NBA for a long time, there are a lot of tall guys that don't go on to have Dikembe Mutombo careers, uh, he learned that defensive skill, and it was phenomenal. Amazing. The he- thing, when I was in Nigeria, we watched Nigeria win the All-Africa Cup in football, soccer. And their star goalie was um, a young Akeem Olajuwon. I thought you might say that. In, in the goal, just like, nope, he's not going in. Sorry, nope, you're not getting him. Uh, yeah. It's Hakeem... He didn't play basketball until he came to the States, I believe. That's incredible. Yeah. Is he? I wonder if he's one of those guys that is like a superstar in basketball but wishes he could have played soccer. Like... Um, like Steve Nash, his true his first love is soccer. I think as the Nigerian kid, that has to be the case. I mean, because that's the that's the world sport. So um, interesting that if you watch him play, and obviously as a Knicks fan, God help me, I watched him play. And a Georgetown fan. And a Georgetown fan. He is one of the more athletic basketball players I've seen um, he's just he actually had the, the build in the game that would enable him I think to play very well in today's game and dominate in a different way um, because he'd still probably have uh, something of a back to the basket type technique uh, but his ability to get outside and move which, by the way, is a testament to the greatness of one Patrick Ewing. Because Patrick Ewing was not the ballerina, and he learned to beat the ballerinas. Um, his game at the end, or towards the end, improved because he just would grind it out and learn. It's almost like coming in and you speak great German, but in order to win, you realize you have to learn France and. Uh, French and Greek, mm-hmm. and he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
Man, my brother and I were talking about best NBA decades, and I was remembering the 90s with those Knicks-Pacers rivalries, Knicks-Bulls, the Knicks-Rockets. It was so physical. The fighting. I knew knew the stats of the players on Cleveland. Like, Mark Price had nightmares about Mark Price. And this is not, you know, he's not necessarily pivotal to Knicks lore, but if you were to be a Knicks fan and want to get to the finals, there were many bumps in the road, and one of the bumps was Mark Price. Wasn't he someone... Lucky for you, the Washington Bullets were never a big threat to you, so you're welcome. No, they were not. Who was on there? Uh, although the Cavs? You mean Brad Daugherty? LJ, yeah, the Cavs were big with Brad Daugherty, and that, um, uh, and that had Mark Price. Um, did not... Uh, Larry Johnson played on the Washington, didn't he? Larry Johnson played for the Hornets and then... The Hornets. And and the Hornets that team had Alonzo Mourning and uh, Alon- uh, Larry Johnson and Muggsy Bogues. Muggsy Bogues. That was a uh, that was an exciting team. Yes, fun to watch. And then the uh, the the Mavericks had. I'm like an encyclopedia for like seven years. You know, when you're like nine to sixteen or something, the Mavericks had Jason Kidd, Jamal Mashburn. Um, yeah. Triple J's. And Jimmy Jackson. Yep. Uh, they can put some points up. But then it was like, oh, wait, oh, wait, the Bulls have Jordan. Never mind. Who cares who's on the other teams? But the thing is that I, what I liked about what I liked about that time, and you had the Utah Jazz with Malone, Stockton and Malone. Mm-hmm. You had the Jazz, you had the Knicks. Barkley and the Suns. Barkley and the Suns, that's true. No team, look, everyone knew there were teams that did well. Detroit had its time. Boston had its time. The Bulls had its time. But that didn't mean that other teams just were like, oh, you know, we're out. No. Uh, everyone was like, I'm in. Uh, and those are the kind of games you got. Yeah. And, you know, it just, you, you always had a shot. You always had a shot. Um, you know, and that's that's what kept you going. I mean, this is why I and I get the LA Times today. But part of the reason I get the LA Times is because back in that time, I bought and read the New York Times and the New York Post and potentially the Daily News to read all the stories about the Knicks from the previous game, previous night. Now, so you weren't much of a fan. Kind of my Knicks them. I watched the game live. Then I caught the recap. Was it on New York One? I probably caught the recap on New York One, meaning the shortened version of the game. They would replay the game. And then I would listen to the news talk about the game. And then the next day, read the papers, all the, both papers and perhaps three, about that one game. That was some... Well, I was, I was in law school. I, I, I needed something. You needed an outlet. Yes. And the next game, too, they were a perfect outlet. Scrappy team. Ugh, 
well, I could talk about the NBA for another hour, but maybe that's a good place to start. And I'm stop. And I'm excited because we technically we only got to. You're still in Massachusetts at this point, so I think we could right. roll this into a part two someday. All right. Uh, you know what? I have time. I thought I was going to say. I know you have a really busy schedule right now. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, to the six and a half people that listen to this, I hope we entertained you a little bit during this shutdown. Particularly the half. I think uh, <laughs> yeah. he's been having a rough time. So. Yeah, thoughts and prayers with him. And yes. uh, uh, thanks so much for being on the show, and I'll talk to you real soon. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I will. I guess I have to shut it off because it's on my side. Uh, thanks for bringing me on. This is a nice. Uh, this is a nice break from the, the news we're dealing with right now. For me, Stay too. Safe. You, so too. That's right. This message is from Woody and Nike. Just do it. <laughs>